0: A moment of confusion, there's no need for us to fight We can find our own solution, just a difference of perspective A moment of confusion, there's no need for us to fight We can find our own solution, pat yourself on the back The empathy you lack someone just like
1: you Tell yourself it's okay to act this way While your enemies are pushing through There's no need for us to fight We can find our own solution Just a difference of perspective A moment of confusion There's no need for us to fight We can find our own solution Just a difference of perspective A moment of confusion There's no need for us to fight We can find our own solution One more time for the folks in the back Your civil rights are under attack Let's stand together, get back on track Stop the infighting, tell each other something
0: Like music? Like supporting the local scene? Like doing nice things? Well, donate to bff.fm at bff.fm slash donate today to help keep community radio and the Bay Area music scene alive.
2: Hey, my name is Alan Moskowitz, and once again, it's the FPM Fake Publishing Millionaire's Hour. Good to fucking see you. I got some gems tonight. I got a project called In Class Movie, which combines public domain books on tape uh, with cut up old New Wave recordings and drum machines. There's a few of those sets. Uh, First up, though, I would love to play for you a song called Our Gas Station Chicken is Better Than Your Gas Station Chicken by The Wild Jumps from Portland, Oregon. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> All right, so here's the first in-class movie, 96 mixtape.
3: Things cannot be otherwise than as they are. For all being created for an end, all is necessarily for the best end. Observe that the nose has been formed to bear spectacles. Thus, we have
1: spectacles.
3: Legs are visibly designed for stockings, and we have stockings. Stones were made to be hewn and to construct castles. Therefore, my lord has a magnificent castle, for the greatest baron in the province ought to be the best lodged. Pigs were made to be eaten, therefore we eat pork all the year round. Consequently, they who assert that all is well have said foolish things, should have said all is for the best
4: there can be no effect without a cause the whole is necessarily concatenated and arranged for the best
5: one morning As Gregor Samsa was waking up from anxious dreams, he discovered that in bed he had been changed into a monstrous, venomous bug. He lay on his armor hard back and saw, as he lifted his head, his brown, arched abdomen divided up into rigid, bow like sections. The blanket just about ready to slide off completely, could hardly stay in place. His numerous legs, pitifully thin, flickered helplessly before his eyes. It was no dream. What's happened to me? Introduction. A word from WNYC's reporter on the afterlife. I'm to go through the pearly gates, no matter how tempting the interviewee on the other side, as I myself discovered the hard way, is to run the risk that crotchety St. Peter, depending on his mood, may never let you out again. I'm Think of how heartbroken your friends and relatives would be if, by going through the pearly gates and to Napoleon, say, you, in effect, committed suicide. The following reports were recorded for later broadcast by radio station WNYC. The tape recorder, incidentally, like the gurney, was the property of the good people of Texas and was ordinarily used to immortalize the last words of persons about to make a one-way, all-expenses-paid trip to paradise. I was lucky enough on this trip to interview none other than the late Adolf Hitler. I was gratified to learn that he now feels remorse for any actions of his, however indirectly, which might have had anything to do with the violent deaths suffered by 35 million people during World War II. He and his mistress Eva Braun, of course, were among those casualties, along with 4 million other Germans, 6 million Jews, 18 million citizens of the Soviet Union, and so on. I paid my dues, along with everybody else, he said. Years ago, when I was a boy, you taught me to be vain of my good looks. You introduced me to a friend of yours who explained to me the wonder of youth, and you finished the portrait of me that revealed to me the wonder of beauty. In a mad moment that even now I don't know whether I regret or not, I made a wish. I remember it. Oh, how well I remember it. No, the thing is impossible. You told me you destroyed it. I was wrong. It has destroyed me. It is the face of my soul. It has the eyes of a devil. My God, if it's true, Exclaimed. Oh, this is what you have done with your life. Why, you must be worse even than those who talk against you fancy you to be.
2: the first mixtape by in-class movie 96 it's from october of 2012 um part of why i didn't introduce this band before or part of why you've never heard of them is that it's a project of mine from that time period when i was uh the night janitor at the exploratorium back when it was at the palace of fine arts and uh you know the close the museum down and i'd be mopping um in these big circles around the building uh, and you'd be having a conversation with your co-worker and then they would just drift away from you and you'd need to entertain yourself for the hours where you're by yourself just deep cleaning the palace of fine arts um and so i started listening to books on tape in one ear um and then uh, music on the other ear or uh, honestly most of the night crew was deaf so i could play uh music through the speakers and the uh, Palace of Fine Arts while I was cleaning, and I'd listen to books on tape, and uh, I, was, I was just getting into a lot of, uh, uh, i had never read um, any of the um, Dumas books before, any of these, these classic pieces of literature, and I was pairing them a lot with the, the Clash and all the other, you know, stuff I was into in my early 20s. And I would get home and have these ideas still sitting there, uh, burning a hole through my overcaffeinated head, and I'd, I'd crack the first handful of beers that, you know, you need to be able to sleep at about 6 in the morning when the sun's coming up. And I would sit there with this uh, little DAW on a laptop and just, you know, fuck around with some samples I got from when I was in high school doing drum gigs for different people and accumulated as many drum sounds recorded as I could. Um, from different producers and different places with good microphone rigs i made three of these um and i didn't remember making them oh here it comes that's the end of the other one oh, let's do the big fade out uh in the middle there hey, hey. <laughs> okay well let's try that one more time um Let me take you to the second mixtape. That first one was self-titled, but uh, the second one uh, was named Hunger after the book by uh, the famous bullshit Nazi sympathizer, Newt Hampson, um, who uh, Bukowski, uh, who's another bullshit Nazi sympathizer, was really into. And I came to read Hunger and I find it to be a fascinating book, but you know, there are a lot of really fucked up people that make fascinating literature that you feel compelled to read sometimes. And that wasn't really the tone of the album, but I just felt like maybe a nice addendum for you about Newt's stupid-ass Hanson. Here we go.
0: Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen Chapter 1 It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first in the neighborhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding family that he is considered the rightful property of some one or other of their daughters. The business of her life was to get her daughters married. She was a woman of mean understanding, little information, and uncertain temper. She is a selfish, hypocritical woman, and I have no opinion of her. Kitty has no discretion in her coughs, said her father. She times them ill. I do not cough for my own amusement, replied Kitty fretfully. What can be the meaning of that emphatic exclamation? cried he. you consider the forms of introduction and the stress that is laid on them as nonsense? I cannot quite agree with you there. At our time of life, it is not so pleasant, I can tell you, to be making new acquaintances every day. But for your sakes, we would do anything. What say you, Mary? For you are a young lady of deep reflections, I know, and read great books and make extracts. Mary wished to say something sensible, but knew not how."
6: I described, as well as I could, our way of riding, the shape and use of a bridle, a saddle, a spur, and a whip, of harness and wheels. I added, that we fastened plates of a certain hard substance, called iron, at the bottom of their feet, to preserve their hooves from being broken by the stony ways on which we often travelled. My master, after some expressions of great indignation, wondered how we dared to venture upon a Buinam's back, for he was sure that the weakest servant in his house would be able to shake off the strongest Yahoo or by lying down and rolling on his back, squeeze the brute to death. I answered that our horses were trained up from three or four years old to the several uses we intended them for, that if any of them proved intolerably vicious, they were employed for carriages, that they were severely beaten while they were young for any mischievous tricks, that the males, designed for the common use of riding or draught, were generally castrated about two years after their birth to take down their spirits and make them more tame and gentle. That they were indeed sensible of rewards and punishments, but his honour would please to consider that they had not the least tincture of reason any more than the yahoos in this country. It put me to the pains of many circumlocutions to give my master a right idea of what I spoke, for their language does not abound in But it is impossible to express his noble resentment.
4: Well, let us sit down then. No, not down there by the door. You are far too reserved. You there, and I here. So, that's it. Ugh! It's such a bore with reticent people. One has to say and do everything oneself. One gets no help to do anything. Now, for example, you might just as well put your arm around the back of my chair. You could easily have thought of that much out of your own head, couldn't you? But if I say anything like that, you open your eyes as wide as if you couldn't believe what was being said. Yes, it really is true. I have noticed it several times. You are doing it now, too. But you need not try to persuade me that you are always so modest. It is only when you don't dare to be otherwise than quiet. You were daring enough the day you followed me straight home and worried me with your witticisms. It was really quite shameless of you. I sat dejectedly and looked at her. Listen, said I, you're evidently sitting here, laboring under the delusion that I can dress and live exactly as I choose, aren't you? And that is just what I can't do. I am very, very poor. There now, one can just see, she said. Now one can see, one can snub you with just the tiniest frown, make you look sheepish by just moving a little away from you. She laughed, tantalizingly, roguishly. Well, upon my soul, I blurted out, now you shall just see. And I flung my arms violently around her shoulders. Did she think I was totally inexperienced? Ha! No one should say that of me, that I was backward on that score. Creature was possessed by the devil himself. If it were only a matter of going at it, well. She sat quite quietly and still kept her eyes closed. Neither of us spoke. I crushed her fiercely to me, pressed her body greedily against my breast, and she spoke never a word. I heard her heart beat, both hers and mine. They sounded like hurrying hoofbeats. I kissed her. I no longer knew myself, I uttered some nonsense that she laughed at. This ain't nothing no. this is uh,
5: Good day you folks. Good day for it. Uh, I don't know about that.
1: Well, good luck
5: anyway. Come on. Hold on my dear.
1: It's chilly out here.
3: How come you're fishing without a rug? What you got down there, eh? What I've got. Oh, Fred. I suppose we take a look. I'm not I'm not feeling well. Out, but... Here it comes. We have flung a great living lump of something down in front of us. A horse's head. Cut off that only yesterday. Oh, what do you think of that? Oh when the horse's head darted comes with the for small light
5: green ears. Oh Oh, for God's
1: sake, Dan, yeah, hey
5: just shoves these little buggers in the sack then all I has to do is rip off the jaw and I can squeeze out the big
7: juicy boggers <laughs> and when he pulled an enormous eel from the horse's ears
3: followed by a mess of white porridge from its brain bloody hell Yeah, lovely rock throw you up a tree <laughs> right, alright well, nothing like a, a good eel
1: please, please,
7: it was Yann who led her away whilst Max were at fishermen like they were old mates. I hope you're going to get do to eat
1: those things Alfred.
3: Come on, Wussing Gad. You've always known how to catch eels. Never stopped you eating them before. Oh, oh come on. You oh. could we'll love them once yours, truly Let's oh. them up.
7: we will never touch it again. Not as long as I live. And yet.
3: And yet. Oh, for goodness sake, stop eating so much
7: fish. Oh. Nobody's
3: making you do this, my dear. I don't want you to do it started a breakfast on canned sardines. Two hours later <laughs> no talk. No. No. with mustard Halfway through the afternoon
7: It was out with a can <laughs> What is it with <laughs> uh. you? And if Matzerap refused to buy any more
1: fish that
7: was it for our at the time The doctor
3: spoke of jaundice and fish poisoning and just don't know. Oh, God.
0: What? Miscreant? Is it you who abandoned yourself to such excesses? What? Father? Is it, Is it you, you who stooped such shameful deeds?
8: Yes, sure. sir. away. Hmm. Did I not give you water?
0: Scene 3. Half a gun. It is you who are ruining yourself by loans so greatly to be condemned. So it is you who seek to enrich yourself by such criminal usury. But do you dare after that to show yourself before me? And you dare after that to show yourself to the world? Are you not ashamed, tell me, to descend to these wild excesses, to rush headlong into frightful expenses, and disgracefully to dissipate the wealth which your parents have amassed with so much toil? Get out of my sight, you reprobate! Get out of my sight! Who is the more criminal in your life? He who buys for the money of which he stands in need? Or he who obtains by unfair means money for which he has no use? I had better go and see his little act in my life. <sighs> ah, Mr. You see me, the most unfortunate of men, and you can never imagine what vexation and disorder is connected with the contract you have come to sign. I know my business. I am attacked in my property. I am attacked in my honor. (laughs) And you see there a scoundrel and a wretch who has violated the most sacred rights, who has introduced himself into my house as a servant in order to steal my money and seduce my daughter. Whoever thought of your money about
5: which you rave?
0: Yes. They have given each other a promise of marriage. Yes. (laughs) Charge him, sir, as he ought to be, and make matters very criminal.
4: I do not see what
6: crime they can make of my passion for your daughter.
0: I don't care a pin for all those stories, and the world is full nowadays of those pretenders to nobility, of those imposters who take advantage of their obscurity and deck themselves out insolently with the first illustrious name that comes into their head. Know that I am too upright to adorn myself yes. with a name which is not yes. mine. Yes.
4: Yes. And that all navels can bear testimony yes. to my birth. From Cap Street to the world, this is BFF.FM. Hey.
2: If you're just tuning back in, my name is Alan Moskowitz. You've been listening to some mixtapes I made under the moniker In Class Movie 96 uh, between 2012 and 2013 in the early mornings as a after getting off work as a night janitor at the Exploratorium at the Palace of Fine Arts. It's a children's science museum, cleaning up exhibits uh, late at night uh, and mopping all around the building and uh, listening to... LibriVox audio books on tape which are public domain books read by uh, very tired librarians that have donated their time um, and to recording as many books on tape as possible Uh, it's really accessible LibriVox.org is uh, this spot if you're trying to find a very poorly read book on tape to be able to run to Um, and so I I would uh, do that and do a lot of hours of mopping uh, and uh, listen to really great albums that I uh, absolutely have no rights over and hopefully don't get sued over because it's just an art project and I'm just a small-time motherfucking artist. I got nothing to gain from this. Nobody's ever paid me a cent. Uh, Anyhow. (laughs) There's one more of these mixtapes for you and then, uh, shit, I got some surprise other stuff for you because you're listening to the fake publishing millionaires fucking hour on... uh, F fucking M. Ha 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 Thank you very fucking much. It's been an absolute pleasure. This next one is called Dead Souls. And uh, it's after the Nikolai Gogol novel. Uh, it starts with, of all things, the most contemporary sample in the series. On the final mixtape, a Patton Oswalt sample. Uh, set to a Dead Boys song. Here we go.
3: The human rectum is almost nightmarishly elastic. Whoa! I had four Rubik's Cubes jammed up there one day on a bet with Brian Denny when a heroin crazed Rodney Allen rippy burst into my trailer and punched me right in the solar plexus. I shot out all four cubes and damned if they didn't
2: emerge,
3: plays you're going to see on ESPN every Sunday.
4: Dead Soul. Part 1, Dead Soul. Chapter 8. Part 1, Chapter 8. Dead Soul. First of all, he strove to make his features assume an air of dignity and importance, and then an air of humble but faintly satirical respect, and then an air of respect guiltless of any alloy whatsoever. Next, he practiced performing a series of bows to his reflection, accompanied with certain murmurs intended to bear a resemblance to a French phrase though Chichikov knew not a single word of the Gaelic tongue. tongue. In short, he did all that a man is apt to do when he is not only alone, but also certain that he is handsome and that no one is regarding him Dead Soul chink.
9: I know very well you can't help me, but I tell you because unsuccessful and superfluous people like me find their salvation in talking. I have to generalise about everything I do. I'm bound to look for an explanation and justification of my absurd existence in somebody else's theories, in literary types, in the idea that we, upper class Russians, are degenerating, for instance, and so on. Last night, for example, I comforted myself by thinking all the time ah, how true Tolstoy is, how mercilessly true and that did me good. Yes, really, brother, he is a great writer. Say what you like. Samoylenko, who had never read Tolstoy and was intending to do so every day of his life, was a little embarrassed and said, yes, all other authors write from imagination, but he writes straight from nature.
8: Repeatedly over his shoulder, he was confident none in the noisy crowd was looking his way. He stepped out of his boot and slid into the water. Slid so smoothly he made scarcely a ripple. He swam unobserved to the other shore, which was heavily wooded. Meanwhile, the shy man had drawn his beloved off the dance floor to a relatively quiet corner beside some rose bushes he was down on one knee before her. The beer has dissolved enough of their fear to allow the men to act. Now, many would call this false courage, and they might be right. But there are times, I sincerely agree, when false courage is better than no courage at all. At least, tomorrow morning, the soldier will wake up alive and in his forest hideout, rather than lie cut down like a barley stalk on a senseless, soon-to-be-forgotten battlefield. And before Christmas, our other man will be walking down the aisle with the girl he adores, instead of weeping alone in an empty room while she weds another less worthy suitor.
2: Sheesh, that last one is from Tom Robbins' B is for Beer, which is why you should not let that guy write a children's book. It is a book wherein a child uh, is trying to figure out why her dad likes to drink beer and gets really drunk off one beer and sees a beer fairy that explains beer is rad as an adult and solves problems. Now, I, I like to drink, but that's just a bad fucking children's book. Uh, Thanks for listening. That was a bunch of in-class movie 96 songs, which is a project uh, that I did between 2012 and 2013 Um, It's an absolute pleasure to share that with you. It's weird I tend to focus on the stranger parts of old novels and how they fit together with just a plethora of samples from uh, uh, You know, you could hear a little bit of yelling from a libertines album in some places Uh, I really like a lot of Brit Rocks. There's a lot of those samples um I figured i would have some fun and play you some music that i didn't make that you probably can't get on i promise you you can't get on streaming uh the first track is an mf doom track with um do you know mc paul barman from new jersey um guy has an unmistakable voice and is a great sample and i can totally understand why this did not get cleared for an album Uh, Enjoy
7: I'm
1: old school, this mic is my phone tool. I'm three apples high, I live in a toasto like a smurf. Everyone at birth is given X-ray specs, but they underuse them to undress the opposite sex. Holy guacamole! Let's get this rap cash, cause art right now is on some
3: slapdash, hot trap crap trash. Leave me here, save yourself Okay, trash me a wallet, I'll send help. Now, who drank the last brew? They turn off my cell again. The bill was way past due. Gosh, tell a friend, but don't let them gas you. It's all just wash. Now back to the castle. Where's that? Parts unknown. When I'm home, the seeds throw darts at the throne. No tart taste to the whole cakes. No jakes. And first place in the go-kart race. No goes breaks! To. Teach peace to the babies. We're all the same.
1: At least for the whole sake. Stepped on an undisclosed ring. Get your nose ache. Y'all flows is fake. Yodel A. Eh, he who wants to be my protege. Me So parrot back it, I'm an underline carrot bracket, greater than or equal to,
0: but greater than four stars, greater than straight A report cards, greater than poor sports and divorce courts or sports bars. What's the mission? Making thunder, shaking blunders in this ultimate undertaking on a fun-filled run until...
3: It ain't all about the dollar bill. You could be dead, broke, and be a scholar still. That's true. What question should I ask you? Uh, what type of ill type of tricks do the masks do? Okay, what type of ill type of ill tricks do the masks do? The face removed, and I give chicks tattoos. But then they can see your face. I make them look the other way. I almost caught a case off that same shit the other day. And Grady's truck is where I first got lucky. In the 80s now, I make the ladies say yucky like Sandy. Look, that milk mustache
1: is bullsnot. On your bullsnot. No, that's what I call hot!
2: Uh, this one's Wamba. Her Majesty's a
7: pretty nice girl but she doesn't have a lot to say Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl but she changes from day to day I wanna tell her that I love her a lot but I've gotta get a belly full of wine Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl someday I'm gonna make her mine oh yeah someday I'm gonna make her mine Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl but she never does a thing for me. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she keeps the worst company All her lords and her ladies-in-waiting, all crawling in the dirt like swine Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but I hope she's the end of the line, oh yeah I hope she's the end of the line Her Majesty's living in a land of curses, A world of bluish blood and Nazis, yeah her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but I think she ought to call it a day Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl without one good reason to stay I'd like to take her for a whiskey or two, but I've got a lot of things to do Her Majesty's a throwaway song, just short of a chorus or two Oh yeah, short of a chorus or two A world of corgis and inbreeding The royal corpse is barely breathing her Majesty is a pretty nice girl with a circus for a family. My Majesty is a pretty nice girl, but she's stuck with the royal wing. I'd like to show her around the center of town, but I haven't got a copy for her feet. Her Majesty is a pretty nice girl, but she's pretty much obsolete. Oh yeah, she's pretty much obsolete.
2: Fucking pen pals, tell me why.
0: in NPR, when they're like, now we come to the time where we ask you to donate. Well, this is like that, but short. Donate at bff.fm slash donate today.
2: All right. Well, I figured I would read you a short story from uh, one of the first zines we did with fake publishing millionaires. It's called Good Question. Uh, and this story is called J.D. Salinger thinks of Charlie Chaplin on D-Day. <sighs> J.D. Salinger, clutching the first six chapters of a yet unpublished Catcher in the Rye, ruefully gazed from a 4th Infantry boat about to collide head-on with the Nazis. He had campaigned almost as hard for the U.S. government to ignore his heart defect as he had to be published in The New Yorker, and both attempts had left him in shambles. (laughs) Now this. Great. If it wasn't for this stupid war, he would be back with Una, yes, that's her real name, O'Neil, the love of his life, not watching her on the few newsreels he could access as, as she betrothed the same little tramp whose cinematic mustache the head of the Axis powers had publicly stolen. Now here he was, by his own choice and effort on a death cruise mission headed to, for a doppelganger mustache with the original back in the States rubbing itself all over his would-be girl. The chaplains would have six children together ultimately, some with mustaches of their own. Una was so close to being a Salinger, but she was only 16 when Jerome left. Salinger was beginning to hate that mustache. Not because of the war, though. Salinger's real problem with world wars were, as with all his complaints in life, shocked up to the kind of multifaceted, soul-tormenting disappointment that not even his attempts at Buddhism could alleviate. He was disgusted that his desire for a universal experience of being a soldier to impress the woman he loved had driven her from his arms. But more importantly, he was distraught that the Japanese bombing had struck just as The New Yorker was about to print his first holding Caulfield story, sending Slight Rebellion off Madison Ave to top of their gilded trash heap pile. Thinking about it, Salinger had much more to hold against the Japanese for directly blocking his literary dreams and thrusting his home country into an international conflict. But Jerry David Salinger still couldn't shake the fantasy of simultaneously yanking Chaplin and the real Greek dictator's mustaches right from their famous tabloid jowls. Maybe that's what he would do if he ever got off this freezing fucking boat. It seemed like forever since they embarked, and he really needed to pee. But this was nothing like the Circle Line of the Hudson. He tried to light a cigarette, but the wind coming off the stern was too strong. Sit the fuck down, rich boy said lieutenant glass but i'll ruffle all the papers in my uniform they're in a real particular do you want to die sergeant maybe salinger huffed but didn't dare let the lieutenant hear nobody liked an angsty soldier and jerome didn't really feel that way deep down sure he was prone to emotional outbursts but no matter how destructive he got he knew that his stars were just the next wave of inspiration that would hit the literary scene They were about real people doing important things that just so happened to not exist until he concocted them. He would publish his goddamn manuscripts in the folds of his uniform, one day. He would do it with the cloud he built publishing stories everywhere else in the goddamn world, home and garden for fuck's sake, except the goddamn New Yorker. Is this about the girl again? Lieutenant Glass asked in a different tone. Salinger may have been showing off the playbills with her picture in them a lot before the whole marriage announcement. How was he to know the world's most popular pedophile movie clown would marry her on her 18th birthday? Chaplin being in his mid-50s, and Una being his fourth wife. The playbills? Sure, he felt ashamed now, but the girl was a fox and he had pictures to prove it. Sure, you know Una was drinking milk in all the nightclub shots to prove that she was only 16, but... No, of course it's not about, um... Well, maybe it is, Salinger said. Am I that easy to read? Just then, a few German artillery shells wiped the MK something or other and half the crew from the side of their landing craft, effectively turning everyone to the right of Salinger into vapor. While it was notoriously hard to remember your troubles when under fire, and twice as hard to feel angsty when your troubles are forgotten, Salinger persevered with a bravery one can only muster when half of their waking consciousness is devoted to making up a world full of people that don't really exist. Plus, he was heartbroken. Una would have loved the view. He couldn't stop thinking about how much she would love the view. Right through the landing craft's gaping wreckage, there was this particular way the water spritzed the asterisk-like sprinkles of the Rommel Asparagus just before they claimed the bows of the American ships. Mm, Such beauty. He thought about it over and over. Such grit. You would never see that in a stupid slapstick movie or one of those Pete Arno cartoons. At least it wasn't that guy in his stupid cover art, the phony, pretentious New Yorker, right, Una? It was that goddamn clown. Put your fucking bayonet on! lieutenant glass bellowed at Sergeant Salinger in the ribs. All the other grunts were screwing theirs at the tops of the rifles in mechanical simultaneous motion. The ones that were still alive, that is. The rest were in the water. Now that he focused, Jerome could hear the artillery blasts in the distance. He'd not noticed the fear floating about the other men like a mist. He was in his own head, those contented bastards and their mediocre but reliable women back home. Fuck 'em. God save the unremarkable, but they were missing all the scenery in the greatest battle of their fucking lives. Salander had much less to lose. He was heartbroken. Una Chaplin, just what had happened to that bluebeard's other wives. Wasn't there a murder scandal in there somewhere? How could Salinger even compete with someone so renowned? They could literally throw a woman off a cruise liner with no consequence. Would there even be a competition if Salinger didn't make it back from this invasion? God, what a bother it all was. Couldn't they just let him write in peace? Sheesh. You do want people to recognize you when you get home, don't you, Sergeant? Asked the Lieutenant. Because if you don't get close to Jerry, because if you get close to Jerry without your bayonet, What about those guys? said Salinger, pointing to the others on the side of the ship. Where? said Lieutenant Glass. I mean, the guys that used to be there, said Salinger. Oh, said the lieutenant. They're dead. Salinger shrugged. One of the rejection letters he'd received the New Yorkers had said simply, Wish to God he would write more simply and naturally. He'd since thought the zen of concise, simple thoughts was wonderful. But Salinger was too aware of his faux-Buddhism to find any comfort in these day-trip realizations, so it was all big guilt loop for him. One big feedback guilt loop. That's when all the different characters had to open up to an argumentative banter. All the glasses, all the Salingers, all the, Ka- the Caulfields. God, they were so clever. He had to struggle to get it all down. People, didn't, people wouldn't call him distant when they saw how important these characters' words could be. It would all pay off in the end. In the new yorker when the boat lurched forward and everyone fell atop the next five people left to the left of them a huge hatch deployed and the front of the mob started crawling out onto the beach in as orderly a fashion as possible the bullets streamed barely audible zigzags around through the mist no amount of training could simulate the pure chaos of it all. Each instant crystallized into a tapestry of unimaginable lush detail that Salinger tried but failed to take in at once. Time didn't slow down as in the phony old movie one-liners that had made him believe, but it kept the same pace with far too much going on at once to comprehend. So many people were dying in an absolute instance. Everyone with a gun was screaming and everyone with a rank was screaming over them. Unlike the artillery blasts, JD couldn't block any of this. There were too much, it was all in his head and it made it creak, creak like it was about to split a hinge. The mob of soldiers separating him from the beach was getting shorter and a growing number weren't making the leap ashore. Bullet riddled bodies floated up through the freezing beach side with a hideous weightlessness that went unnoticed by all except the keen eye of Salinger and the absolute havoc suddenly it all became clear. That world of stories in his head, that non-transferable light that turned on and created all the people that his typewriter merely dictated, they would be forever lost if he ended up with like a soggy husk like the rest of these bastards. Salinger hadn't cared much for himself since he saw Una's wedding photos, having anxiously taken up smoking again and grown a rebellious wartime mustache, but to think of being killed as pathetic, freezing French beach on his first day in action would be the end of a people he spent years creating in his fucking head? That was just too much to fucking bear. It was then Salinger would recall years later that he first got the inclination to hide away from everyone to protect his precious little head and the people he loved so dearly living in it. Thank you. (sighs) Well, if you like that, there's a whole zine worth of stories. Uh, There's one about Henry Miller and George Orwell fighting at a French restaurant. But, um, I'd like to play some Scott music, if that's okay. Smoke bomb! Shh! And with that, we've been transferred out of the wartime years in this godforsaken country and back to the present tense, where it's just still equally fucking awful. But I got some good Scott music for you coming up. Are you familiar with King Prawn? This song is called Seven Seas. <laughs> you've been a pretty fantastic audience my name is alan moskowitz as a fake publisher millionaire's hour and i'd like to reward you by what the fuck i'm gonna read you that second story that i wrote for uh our first um literary compilation zine called good question it came out in 2014 in uh red hook brooklyn at pioneer works at one of their zine events uh and uh take it away django This one's called George Orwell Wants to Kill Henry Miller. It was the 1910s or something, Paris. George Orwell was working in a supposedly, despite his description, posh Paris restaurant. The conditions were horrible. He would later die from the diseases contracted during this whole ordeal. What did he care? He was a writer and finally away from the prude culture of -of turn-of-the-century England. Ray Davies would later go on to explain these British hang-ups in his song, Victoria, but that wouldn't be until decades later. For now, Orwell, despite his misery, was thoroughly enjoying being around so many unrestricted scoundrels and otherwise real people. George carried a tray through a subterranean basement, taking note along the way of all the various obscenities and backroom shenanigans floating around behind him. He thought about writing a book. He was a reporter or something, after all. Months of borderline slave labor had robbed him of a bit of his sense of identity, but the reservations and frigidity of his late 1800s British upbringing were holding fast. Many of his co-workers frequently had to tell him to lighten up when his eyes would turn glassy in shock as they masturbated in the corners or did some other obscene act with nonchalance while on a shift at the restaurant. It was the world he'd never seen, truly he felt he should write a book. His ideas were somehow significant in size, more so than everyone around him. What were the odds that any of these rapscallions, these human scabies on the societies of Metropolis would ever get a word out to the world about their lives? What were the odds that they even cared? Oral had no idea, but he knew two things. One, that he would eventually make it back to England where he still had connections, and two, that he cared to write about it all. None of his actions, however reserved, were insignificant. George carried his tray up the stairs and brought it to the table. Sitting there were three people, an unshaven man constantly scratching his crotch, and a wealthy-looking German couple, both blonde and both the, blonde and the lady intoxicated on absinthe. She was making a huge scene and the German man, despite his rigid Teutonic composure, was beginning to look annoyed. Unshaven scoundrel, who would turn out to be Henry Miller, was also drunk and paid them no mind. Miller gulped down his drink, and out of George's hand began to nip at the other couples as the quarrel spiraled and their cocktails became the last thing on their minds. George stood there silent. The table was too hectic to set anything down, and Miller was simply picking the food right off of George's tray. Finally... The woman ran out of the door, screaming about fucking the next person she met. The German man, after attempting to take a sip of his cocktail, realized it was gone, rose, tucked in his chair, and marched sternly out the door to catch her. It was an eerily predecessor to the goose step. The table, now quiet, was ready to be set. Miller licked his chops and rubbed his palms. When the table was finally done, Miller dug in vigorously, picking his huge morsels off of each plate with each bite. He never even noticed George was still standing there. Um, excuse me, sir? He asked Miller timidly. What? demanded Miller with food dripping from his jowls. He barely even lifted his head from the soup plate he was annihilating. Uh, because of the new restaurant policy, uh, I need you to ask you for the, um, bill, uh, how should I say this? Uh, up front. As in, I need to pay now? asked Miller. Paying full attention now and sitting upright, he wiped the soup off his beard with the sleeve. Y-yes, y- stuttered Orwell. He always hated asking people for money just when they got their food was making getting tips impossible, not that he ever got to keep his tips anyway. Miller looked down at his food. I can't pay for this, he said. Then looking back up at Orwell, he dug his fingers into the bottom of the table and rose to his feet, flipping the soup, the utensils, the hot butter, and all the other condiments of a fine French dinner right into Orwell's face. The table landed right on George's foot. Henry Miller took off across the room shouting, SHENANIGANS, and flew out the door. He would later catch up with a german couple and con them into buying a whore who would give him his 15th case of vd when miller wrote about it people would applaud him they would give him enough money to afford a cheap cure life was lyrical and easy for henry miller meanwhile standing in the exact same spot in the exact same table on his exact same foot george i've got soup on my face orwell was fuming the unbridled anger was too much for such a reserved detached englishman Poor George could not act upon his impulses to violently beat the man to death. He could only fantasize. In this brief instant, fueled by the throbbing pain of his foot and the burning soup on his nicotine-stained mustache, George envisioned Henry Miller with his head in a cage, a hungry rat coming from the other end, to chew off the smug look on Henry Miller's face. Thank you. All that's available in Good Question from Fake Publishing Millionaire. It's out of print right now, but we'll get some back up soon, maybe. we got some other cool zines coming out. Uh, I'd like to play it out with a couple of ska songs, if you're interested. This again is Django Reinhardt. Let's start with a couple from uh, Mano Negra. Last but not least, Kill Fucking Lincoln.